Hello, musers, reflectors, ponderers, and meaning makers. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of this show, Right Minded, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Grant Faulkner of NaNoWriMo. And Grant, we are making our way through this craft series, which I'm really enjoying. And it's particularly fun to read our guests' books, thinking about them through the lens of craft. I mean, I kind of do that already, but I love getting to choose the things that we think our guests do particularly well. Yeah, it's great. And I think that the, that's one big benefit of, of thinking about craft, too. You, you go deeper with your reading. And, uh, you know, I was just recently thinking that we could actually write a craft book about this craft series. <laughs> we uh, could. Yeah. But, it, yeah, because we've been looking at it through so many different lenses. So it's really it's really been interesting. And like you say, it's really interesting then to read the people's, you know, work, the, the writers we're interviewing. Yeah, it is. And and today we're interviewing a special guest, Prince Shakur, who's a debut memoirist. I think he's quite the Renaissance man, because in addition to being a memoirist, he's an artist and a podcaster and a documentarian, video maker, and an activist, among other things. Uh, and something I noticed, I couldn't help but notice, of course, because of my love for memoir, but he quite brilliantly incorporates reflection into his book, When They Tell You To Be Good, is the title. Uh, and you know, reflection, I think, is somewhat unique to the genre of memoir. It's not to say that characters in novels don't ever reflect, but in memoir, it's a truly essential piece of what you need to learn how to do. So you, being the protagonist, need to show your reader how and why your scenes matter by sharing your thoughts and feelings about how your story is unfolding. And so for some writers, of course, this comes really easily and naturally. But for others, and I know this very intimately, it's a true challenge because some people, independent of their writing, struggle to make meaning just in general. Uh, and so, Grant, I'm curious, before we get too far into meaning making and memoir, is there a way that this translates into fiction that I'm maybe not seeing completely? And do you think that the writer has the same responsibility in fiction to show the reader the thoughts and feelings of their protagonists? I'm curious. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. It's, it's an interesting distinction between the two. Um, it it kind of depends on, on what you're reading and writing for in the end. I think a lot of genre fiction in particular is definitely designed around providing uh, a story experience primarily for readers. You know, I'm thinking of the, the whodunit element of a mystery novel. You're reading just to find out who committed the murder. So you're just you're reading for just the story, not necessarily to have the reflections of a character. But I think a mystery novel can provide both. It can provide the satisfaction of the story experience alongside the deeper reflection you're talking about if the author wants to design it like that. And I'd actually all say that, you know, really all the best books we talk about for years and years combine a good story along with meaningful reflection. And in some way, I think this is one definition of many novels. They provide a kind of kaleidoscope of different characters' perspectives or reflections on an event. And so they read as a type of chorus of reflections or a series of counterpoints. Although I think that, you know, they obviously read different than I think the kind of reflection you're talking about in memoir. But a lot of fiction is, is, is actually based in reflection. And that is where, you know, the story occurs. And I'm thinking of you know, Virginia Woolf or William Faulkner, who, who centered some of their best work in the, in the deep interior lives of their characters' minds. Um, I'd also say that the worlds and the best fiction are colored by the minds of the characters. So the story isn't just a story. It's more of an experience of a world presented through that reflection. So I guess the telling part of fiction tends to happen in a variety of modes. Yeah, I appreciate that you said that word telling, you know, because there's that maxim, of course, show 
don't tell, mm-hmm. but really reflection involves telling, <laughs> uh, you know, and it is the inner thoughts of the, in the case of memoir, the author, and in the case of, you know, protagonists in fiction, then of course the characters, but they're really commenting on the events that have just unfolded, like whatever scene has just been written. Uh, and so that's something that needs to be balanced with the action and the dialogue and the plot. The telling part is where, you know, memoirists actually go into their own mind to articulate this you know, what for (laughs) question. Uh, And so these are moments of realization, moments of insight. And so I I thought it would just be helpful. I don't, we almost never do this, but I'm going to read a short passage from Prince by way of example uh, from his memoir. And it's a page, but I wanted people to hear how he does this. And especially because we're doing a craft series. So he, this is what it says. And it's a, it's a short little scene followed by reflection. So let's listen and invite you to try to point out the parts that you think are reflection. So one morning during a bus ride to work, I met a white man with a scraggly ponytail. We chatted about the weather. He introduced himself as Wesley and invited me to his dorm for drinks after work. In his room, we drank whiskey out of red solo cups, and I stayed chipper as the conversation wandered to liberals whining about the Confederate flag. I argued weakly with him until Wesley promised that he wasn't racist because he attended the most diverse high school in his country where his best friend was black. Maybe you think he's your friend, but he never really trusted you. Black people don't always tell the truth, I said, and ignored Wesley when he scoffed, took a long sip of whiskey, and went on a tangent about affirmative action. Only an hour into hanging out, Wesley excused himself to the bathroom. I waited 20 minutes before checking on him. Wesley, this 40-something-year-old man, lay sideways in the shower and sobbed. I couldn't understand his muffles until I got closer and egged him on. This country ain't what it used to be, he cried again and again. In that moment, I realized something new. As I thought of the love I left when I heard the vigor in Malcolm X's voice and what it meant for it to be so easy to shoot down a man like him in front of a crowd of people, no matter what you did, America could fold your story into its own. Whether you be the revolutionary that got what was coming to him or the good child told to be kind to others, to hear them out and to brush it aside when a man double your age tries to get you drunk and defend the very systems that could destroy you. So thanks for listening, everyone. But I wanted to point out, you know, in that moment, I realized that's that's part of reflection. That's an overt way of reflection. But I show this scene to show all the elements laid out. You know, you have the scene in which Prince meets Wesley, goes home with Wesley, gets agitated while talking to him, and then begins to ponder the questions, right? Why does this matter? And so in this memoir, this short little scene is earning its place, you know, and it's doing that by meeting a few criteria, you know, it's pertaining to the themes of the book. Uh, It's also forwarding the action or the plot. And then there's Prince's interpretation of why it matters. And that is the part that I'm really always impressing upon my memoirists, because it's, it's so essential for the reader's understanding. And so Grant, I'm 
curious if you've been conscious in your own reading of personal narratives, you know, of being impacted by the author's reflections. You know, I know we've talked about before that you're taken by Pico Iyer's memoir, The Man Within My Head, about Graham Greene, and we've spoken about that in other podcasts. Uh, that's just, you know, one of many memoirs that I can think of that are very reflection heavy that I know you know. I think from what I know of your reading taste that you favor this kind of writing that delves headfirst into topics and experiences for the sake of making sense of human experience more broadly. And I'm curious if you'd characterize reflection that way or, you know, some other way for the sake of deepening this conversation about reflection as craft. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. Um, you're right. I definitely prefer memoirs that are reflection heavy and, and even lyrical. And I think, you know, a memoir can also be reflection, you know, as a primary thing and not just the, the showing part of the drama, in other words, or it can, can, that balance can be shifted. And, you know, I think about this because one of my favorite memoirs that I've read in the past year was Maggie Nelson's Bluettes, you know, which hybridizes several prose and poetry styles as it, you know, as she tells the story of her personal suffering and love, but it's refracted through the color blue. So it's kind of this ongoing meditation and reflection that actually eclipses any sense of a single dramatic story in that. And, um, you know, Maggie Nelson shapes her memoir through these short fragments she calls propositions. And, and that makes me think of Sarah McGuse's memoir, Ongoingness, which is shaped by even shorter snippets, you know, just sometimes like just a sentence or two. And the memoir is about her obsessive need to write. And she'd kept a meticulous diary for 25 years. And she wanted to record like everything in her life as if it, if it, it didn't happen unless she wrote about it. And then she became pregnant and had a child. And these two events generated a type of kind of an amnesia that put her into a different relationship with the need to document herself amid ongoing time. And so it's this fascinating book, uh, but it's very, very heavy. You're, you're reading it through the drama of reflection, essentially. And just to introduce uh, another way of going about that, I have to note how a lot of autofiction books border on this. And I'm thinking in particular of Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, which I know I mention a lot, which is both novel and memoir. And so I think writers are writing in these hybrid forms as a way to combine poetry with storytelling as a gateway to that reflection that you're talking about. So how about you, Brooke? What authors do you think about when you think about people who do reflection well? There are lots of memoirists, of course, who excel at this, but I'm going to name a few uh, that I love. Danny Shapiro truly is a master at reflection, very good across all of her books. She excels at getting to the heart of what matters about the scenes that she writes and keeps everything very tightly focused on her themes. So she's a good person to study and she's written multiple memoirs. The first person who taught me to understand reflection on a deep level, though, was Carolyn Knapp and Carolyn died in... 2002. Uh, but she wrote memoir and personal essay and should be emulated. I mean, just beautiful, brilliant. And my favorite book of hers is Drinking a Love Story. Uh, it's just chock full of reflection. There's Kiese Lehman, who I mention as much as you mention Ocean Vuong. Uh, <laughs> you know, I spent all the better part of last year raving about him. I, I honestly think he's a genius and, and Heavy is full of reflection as well. So it's really worth studying his scenes and, and seeing how he does that. And, and today's Prince gives a shout out to Kiese and his acknowledgments, and we'll talk about him a bit in the interview. So I, I think, you know, there are these particular writers, of course, who just 
you want to just soak up everything they do and learn from them. Uh, and Grant, before we get to Prince's interview, I also want to make a distinction between reflective writing and processing, just because processing is something that our culture is so familiar with. And, you know, a lot of people come to memoir writing through journaling or through therapy. And that's not what reflective writing is. You know, it's not just a forum for writers to process their emotions on the page. It, it really is about analytical and critical thinking, about diving more deeply into a particular topic or subject or experience for the purpose of extracting meaning. And so I wonder if you have any helpful closing advice on um, you know, how to think about this from your many years of writing and working with writers. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. And I think the, the excerpt that you read it provided a lot of guidance uh, or answer to that question. You know, I think it's, it's, it's something that's kind of tough to answer because the writers who do it well do it so effortlessly. So I guess I, I just say, you know, the best answer is to read these books we've mentioned and find your favorites and models and, and, you know, identify those moments like you identified and, and then simply try your hand at it. And like any craft element, you have to find yourself in it and you have to feel it out as a vehicle to tell your story in. And, you know, I recently read a definition of craft that said that craft is the, you know, the edges of art. So I'd advise people to experiment with those edges and contours of reflection and see how they flow in a story. And with that, I look forward to hearing more from Prince about the contours he works with in his narratives after this short break. Hey everyone, I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One, part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is, is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. That's about 1,700 words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe NaNoWriMo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and, and honing your discipline to, to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, NaNoWriMo. It takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So, yeah, write with others, have fun writing. Also, write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So, sign up for that midwife. It's all free on NaNoWriMo.org. I'll see you in November in NaNoLand. Welcome back. We have with us today Prince Shakur. He's a queer Jamaican-American freelance journalist, cultural essayist, and grassroots organizers with a BA in creative writing from Ohio University. His words have been featured in Teen Vogue, Catapult, Level, Electric Lit, and more. In addition, Prince is the proud writer-in-residence at Sangam House, 12 Arts, the studios of Key West, and La Maison Baldwin. Interesting. Welcome, Prince. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me here. I, I love this podcast, so it's a pleasure to be here. 
Oh, well, thank you for that. And, you know, I'm excited to ask you uh, about this particular skill set that I saw running throughout your beautiful new memoir. And actually, we didn't say the title, which is When They Tell You to Be Good, a memoir, which is just recently out. Uh, You do a lot of reflection and interpretation following your scenes and in between your scenes. And a good memoir should do this because it supports your reader to know what your reaction is to the scenes that you're unfolding. And so this kind of reflective writing invites us to see what you see, understand what you understand, even and especially when my life experiences are quite different from yours. So I wondered if you could speak to us about reflective writing and, you know, are you naturally good at this kind of musing and interpretation or did you have to learn how to do it for your memoir? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, I kind of think of this in kind of two ways. I mean, I think on a certain level as a reader, I love when I can read a piece of fiction or nonfiction and there's a moment, but that moment is disrupted by something else from the past or an emotion or something in the setting. And so to me, um, reflection kind of involves interruption. Like we reflect while things are happening. And then I think if I'm looking at my book and kind of the work that I put into it and how I kind of lay things out on like a thematic level. So much of my memoir is about like me fearing mortality and also fearing what could happen to me because I'm queer or because I'm an organizer or because I'm radical. And so on a reflection level, I think anticipation is something that is beautiful and can be used as a tool to reveal what a character fears or is worried about. And then once that moment occurs or that thing that they anticipate or fear occurs, the aftermath is also um, a continued reckoning. And and, And these things can show up in kind of any moments. It can show up when you're talking to someone or you're on the bus. And I think for me, the beauty of writing and how it teaches me to be present is that it forces me to look at those moments where I did fear that something was going to happen. And when that moment actually occurred something usually comes out of left field or you have to kind of pull from your devices to figure out like, what is it in me that needs to come to the surface now? And I think when we make those choices in moments of stress, that shows us who we are and we, and we use our interior world to dictate how we react or how we're going to survive or navigate a situation. So for me, reflection is very much like a life tool that I think needs to be in the work for it to have something deeper there. That's interesting, Prince. And I want to keep talking about reflection as a tool and how you use it and especially how you make universal meaning out of, out of personal experience. And, and your story is unique. um, But of course there are many points that are universal in the context of your, you know, your human emotions of loss and betrayal and indignance and so much more. In your writing, were you conscious of how unique your story is or how universal it is, or or is it both? Definitely both. I mean, I knew I wanted to write a book about my experience as a young queer Black person from an immigrant family, and I knew that I hadn't really read something that combined the different elements of this book. Like, I hadn't really read a single memoir that was about a Black man, but it was queer, but it was also delving into the danger of like being a radical organizer and also experiencing anti-blackness abroad. And I kind of sense in general, when I talk to people about my life, they're kind of like, you were doing all these things in what span of time? (laughs) And so I knew that even just like the geography of the 
places and experiences that I unravel in the book. Like it is strange, but I think in the strangeness, like the insecurities that I express and the kind of the feeling of being across the world, but still being caught up in something deeply personal back home. Like, I think those are feelings that we can all kind of relate to. It's just the fact that in my book and my life, these moments tend to kind of be crammed together and crammed on top of each other and existing alongside each other. And so to me, it's it's almost like the chaos is what derives meaning and we have to derive meaning from. And so like, to me, that's kind of the uniqueness, but I, I wanted to write this because I knew there's a lot of people that are queer that like come out to their families and it's this long gray journey where you have to negotiate what kind of pain you're willing to deal with. And I also know that people that are dark skinned or black, like experience anti-blackness abroad. And I also know that uh, there are plenty of organizers out there that are trying to find language for how to write about like these deeply personal experiences that happen in political spaces. And so to me, like it's both unique, but also the different elements speak to very real things that I think when it's combined together, a uniqueness kind of uh, arises as well. Mm. It's interesting. I was thinking about it as like an interplay because of course we all have these very unique stories and yeah, as you're saying, sort of the feelings and the emotions are often very universal. And and I am going to ask you to read a a little section from your book that I'm going to queue up for the listeners, you know, just to the extent to say that this is when you, after you've come out to your mom and then she brings along your aunt in essence to have a, a bit of a confrontation with you. And I'd like you to read this section, which is just a page long to showcase reflection uh, and and how it's interspersed in the scene. And so if you read it, then um, I'll follow up with a question. Why did you keep this secret from us? My mother asked. I was suddenly aware of how alone we were. My mother with her arms crossed in front of her and my aunt clutching onto her purse. Just a year before, I sat in front of my laptop and read through exactly how Matthew Shepard was murdered. The image of his body strung up like a scarecrow was burned into my head so vividly that I covered his murder for a class assignment. Then came the Google searches and the violence against queer people in Jamaica. Even if I was safe, I was in for a reckoning. It was my hands and my hands only that could guide me home now. I saw no point in holding my tongue anymore. The words, however, came out shakily. I couldn't trust you. I didn't trust you, I replied. What reason did I have to? My mother's face contorted and I couldn't decide if the folds of her expression made her ugly or sad. Aunt Vic edged closer to her but didn't extend any physical reassurance. Her gaze shifted between my mother and me. My mother wiped her face, trying to rid herself of the tears as they fell freely. But uh, we grow you, we feed you, we send you to school, we... You joked about gay people being killed. They didn't have a response. Aunt Vic, someone usually not so nervous, looked like a hostage negotiator. I could handle my secret being outed to someone that looked at me with a pensive gaze. What I couldn't handle was what this situation could become if I didn't steer it in the right direction. So that's just one example of so many profound passages that you have. And the reason that I thought it would be helpful, because so many of our listeners are are writers, uh, aspiring authors, authors themselves, and in memoir, this 
this facile interplay as you have between, you know, dialogue and then really stopping to interpret and tell us what was going on inside of you and how you're seeing your mother and your aunt Vic interpreting for us what you're thinking and, you know, the, the pressures that are on you in this moment, it, it makes so much more at stake. So, so thank you. So thank you for doing it so well. And, you know, the question, you know, really in, in showcasing this is for memoirists out there who are struggling with this, like, how do you think about the balance? You know, like, what do you feel that your reader needs to know? And, you know, is there some kind of barometer or thing that you learned in the writing of the memoir that you could share with, um, with memoirists? I think initially my first response is that revision and editing is so much of sharpening a scene. Uh, like that scene is actually where I originally um, had the memoir start because it very much is a moment of danger and it's a moment of me being very present and also being afraid. But um, through the revision process, like one thing that my literary agent would tell me again and again is just try to describe what it felt like in your body, like be very present in the moment. And so in a lot of ways to me, like dropping someone into a scene and making it visceral is kind of sort of like, an, it's it's to me, it's, it's like acting. It feels very physical, the deeper and deeper that you go into it. Um, and, 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 I, and I feel like in that scene, it's especially me alone with my mother and my aunt and there's the interior world, interior world that I can explore. There's the kind of anger and betrayal I feel towards my mother, but I also have to be, and I should be very aware of how I express what my aunt's dynamic adds to the situation. The fact that my aunt is standing close to my mother, but she isn't like touching her on the shoulder. Like there's still a level of hardness or stigma to what this conversation is. And so body language is like a way to express that, the kind of darkness of the scene. And so I feel like through the revision process, you kind of peel the layers back and those kind of pieces that you kind of specify and unravel, it really makes it feel more real because it's less about what exactly I was thinking. And it's more about what details in the scene showed that I was in danger and how, how do I rise that to the surface? And so... Um, there's plenty of parts in the book where I'm operating on that level. And so it was just very important for me to honor like what it felt like on a bodily level and and how to express that, especially. Well, Prince, you give a shout out in the acknowledgements to writers who fed you, you know, ranging from classic greats like James Baldwin and Malcolm X to much more contemporary writers like Kiese Lehman, Jasmine Ward and Ocean Vuong. So I was wondering if you could share, I'm always interested in how, what writers take from other writers. And so I was wondering if you could share more about the way that these writers did feed you. Mm, that is such a good question. Um, so much. I mean, a lot of the Black revolutionaries I note, um, reading their books really taught me that it's important to write about your political experiences of the Black person because we live under this apparatus of white supremacy and capitalism and state violence. And to be of a background of people that have fought that and have had to find ways to document our own histories because the mainstream doesn't want to to remember that or to record it like that to me is such a power. And it felt so important for me to incorporate that into this in a way that respects those movements and doesn't overshare and doesn't try to speak to why those movements exist in the first place. And so that was something really powerful that I got. Um, I mean, definitely reading heavy by Kiese, um, 
um, that book really just gave me the sort of seed of like what I really wanted this book to kind of mean, which is how can men write about the structure and the utilities of masculinity, whether good or bad, and how can we unpack a deeper language around that? Um, I mean, Ocean Vyong has just given me so much with On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. Like I'm looking at the book right now on my desk and Jasmine Ward's book actually as well. But for Vyong, it's just like, how do you write about desire in this way that's like explosive and it's like a, a like a atmosphere, I think, as he uh, describes it in an interview. And, and, and on a really deep level, like reading um, The Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward, I think it just really gave me the permission to kind of reckon with the fact that I deserve to talk about these legacies of violence that have been committed by or against these men in my family and how I, on a really deep emotional level, have sort of embodied this sort of guilt around that. And even as a queer person, I think it separates me from those violences, but I think getting closer to them and giving them language, it allowed me to kind of release myself from some of that guilt. And I feel like Jasmine Ward's work really, really gave me that permission. Um, and yeah, all of those writers gave me something, but I, I really do feel like when I read something that I love and is like honest and enlightening, like some imprint of that is going to end up in my work. And like, there's a chapter where I write about um, losing my best friend's mother and kind of contending with my relationship with my mother because coming out to her wasn't easy. And she was really close to my best friend's mother. And there's a moment in The Men We Reaped where she's kind of reflecting and thinking about um, these people that have passed, um, like taking her for a ride in the car whenever she's in heaven. And, and, and it's just like, like that moment is in my book and it, it's something that I wanted to implant in there in my own way. And so I think even kind of, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like honoring these people by sort of refracting their work in some way in your own. And so all of the, those writers I mentioned have given me a lot, um, so yeah, I really appreciate that question. No, I really appreciate you sharing all of that, Prince. And um, I, I am going to take it back to reflection, given the theme of the show. And one way to access reflection is through themes. And so readers know your themes, you know, some of them anyway, and certainly you can layer onto this, but identity, belonging, um, also because your father was murdered, there's death and loss and violence um, that you're circling. And there's a lot of meaning making to extrapolate from themes generally. And I like to think of themes as spices that you're working with, like layering them into your memoir soup or your memoir casserole. And so the question I wanted to ask you is about this consciousness of making meaning and especially the way that themes can sort of serve as a, a North Star or an orienting principle uh, to take you beyond just like what happened. And and so uh, could you speak to that? I mean, could you speak to your consciousness? I mean, especially in light of people who I also adore. I mean, Kiese, Jasmine, Ocean, you know, I mean, great current memoirists like that who are really making meaning in memoir. So did you study up on how to do that? And, um, and what would you say to a writer who is, you know, really thinking about this idea of wanting to infuse more meaning into their memoir? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think on one level, it's true what people say, like a memoir doesn't need to encompass your entire life. I mean, I know when I started writing this, I thought of writing directly from the beginning of my life until uh, present day. And I was like 
splicing things up and putting into chapters. And I realized all of this doesn't need to be included. And so on another level, I had to kind of think of a few sort of guiding stars. And so to me, like kind of to your point, like I had to think of different themes and then I had to think of chapters of my life that represented those themes in really deep and meaningful ways. And then once I kind of was able to look at my life through those lenses, I was able to write towards those experiences. And then through the revision process, you kind of look at the different moments that you include and you think of ways to sharpen it and you think of ways or you try to find other clues or moments or things that kind of deepen or sharpen the emotion of that space. So I mean, a, a, a big chapter that I knew I wanted to write in this is about um, my experiences protesting alongside water protectors uh, with the Standing Rock movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And even though on the surface, that's like just a chapter about me kind of contending with anti-Blackness somewhat in like movement spaces and in, in, in Indigenous-led movements and kind of like being in this really intense political space what is unraveled there is that I'm also contending with my mortality and how carcerality connects me to these men in my life. And so these threads can be there um, and, and I can make them more apparent. One, because I've written it and I've sharpened it. And two, because with those themes in mind, I can look at it and, and, and really bring those forward and, and kind of honor them. And so to me, it's just like kind of like a really sort of beautiful process that you can kind of look back at your life through these lenses. And, and, I, and I feel like I've always kind of done that as a person and as a writer. Um, and yeah, and definitely throughout this book, it's like I started it knowing like, I want to write about what it is like to miss someone that you never really knew. And then on the flip side, it's like, what does it mean to miss or long for family or a home? when you've been displaced because of your queerness or your blackness or your politics. And so by putting those two themes alongside each other, I'm able to complicate either of them. And I think to me, like a beautiful thing about that is like, it's, it's an expansion of language. It's an expansion of an experience into something that's more complicated. And I think that's also like what theme does. Hmm. That's so interesting. I love so much of your language there about the lens looking back and the expansion and um, it brings me, it's a nice segue to my question, which is about the scope and the structure of the book, because you're young and you're writing about a coming of age journey. And at the outset of the book, you're in high school, and then you progress through college and beyond, tracking the trajectory of your travel experiences, which are all time stamped. So I was wondering, can, can you speak to how the structure of the book mirrors your coming of age and therefore your understanding about life and identity? Uh, thank you for this question. Um yeah, definitely. I mean, working and editing with Hanif Abdurraki really brought this book to another level. Like he definitely suggested kind of rearranging it and looking at this book as a sort of collection of mini memoirs. And really when I look through the book, like again and again, as I'm doing more these days, as I'm doing like interviews and things of that nature, um, I really see how to me, I'm glad the book is sort of structured in the way that it is because it shows that some of the things that I feared or grappled with as a child are still some of the core things that I'm grappling with as an adult. Um, I'm grappling with safety about whether or not the people around me are being honest um, about whether or not the truth really matters or if we need to live by the truth in order to like love people. And rearranging the book shows to me that 
I'm grappling with those things continuously. And those are things that I'm going to continue to grapple with. And the beauty of both like living life in an honest way and trying to make art about it is that you get to look at it from so many different lenses and to make so many different connections. And for me, even when I reread the book now, like I see how putting like, I don't know, like my Philippines chapter, like not far from my Yellowstone chapter, um, how even both of those are kind of me dealing with like the, the, the utility and the value of my body in different spaces. And so to me, it's just like, it's really beautiful because I think this book has given me a chance to reckon with and honor my inner child in a way that I think as I was getting into my early 20s and getting out of college and kind of figuring out how to be an adult, um, I was kind of trying to supersede my inner child. And, and I think to me, like the liberatory thing that I tried to do with this book was kind of merging my adult self and my inner child and saying like, both of you deserve to exist at the same time. So how, how do we, how do we showcase that? How do we honor that? How do we make that like a practice that's like not only in your life, but also in your writing. And so that to me is like a big part of what the restructuring and kind of looking at these different places and times, because it shows that these things follow me wherever I go. Hmm. Beautiful, Prince. Thank you. And uh, in closing, I'm, I'm struck by all these things you're involved in, in the creative world. You're a documentarian, a podcaster, a writer. And I said earlier in conversation with Grant before you came on that you're a renaissance man, you know, like a true creative. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So what's the thing that's capturing your attention now? And I'm curious if there's a second book that you've begun to conjure up or if you're working in another medium. I actually finished edits on draft eight of a novel yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, it's a novel I've been working on since basically the lockdown. I actually wrote it in college, but I started rewriting it. And for the past like two years, it's just been something that's been really grounding for me. Um, I mean, it's, it's essentially sort of coming of age through grief narrative about a boy growing up in the South. And a part of it is in 1980s New York against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis. Um, and I mean, the last two years have been wild. I was protesting during the 2020 protests and I took a break from organizing and I've had a few people I've lost in the last like year or so. And so in a lot of really painful and good ways, like this book has helped me kind of process those things. Um, and so I, I've been working on that a lot lately and I'm really close to having like a really polished version of it for my agents. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes because I've been really craving working on my fiction and I, I, I love novel writing. So that's been kind of the big project of my heart lately. Well, that's exciting because we're running this just a couple of weeks before NaNoWriMo gets started, Grant. So it's a it's a great shout out to all of our listeners out there to join us for NaNoWriMo just around the corner. And congratulations, Prince. Thank you so much. There's a, there's some New York City action going outside. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Prince, I, I, think, I think that's a writing prompt for your next novel, which you can start this November. <laughs> yeah. Also, I have to say, I did National Novel Writing Month like three times in high school. So being here is like, it is so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm just so excited. Like I, oh, that's I, so cool. I love that. I love national novel writing month. I love the forums. I love talking to people online. So I just have to give you mad praise for helping me on my writing journey. Cause it really did. Oh, cool. That's really touching. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Thanks Prince. Take care. Thank you. 
We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Grant, I chose this week's trend, the rise in popularity of romance, because it surprised me when I was getting some pressure from my sales team last month to categorize more of our books as romance, because historically that trend has been the exact opposite, which is to steer away from it. So I'm curious, were you surprised when I told you about that little anecdote? It's interesting because romance has always been this hugely popular a genre within publishing, but largely disdained and dismissed. Mm-hmm. So, no, it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, I just read Romance Accounted for 18% of adult fiction unit sales in the 12 months ending uh, March 2021, which makes it the second most popular fiction genre. But as I mentioned, you know, it's just it's just not something that gets talked about a whole lot. Um, instead, romance is and historically been this genre that no one seems to want to admit that they read. Like uh, one of the reasons so many people read Fifty Shades of Grey was that they could read it on a Kindle and no one would see them reading it. Or that was what I, I read. But unit sales for romance books topped, you know, 47 million in the 12 months ending uh, March 2021, including print and ebook sales combined, representing an increase of 24% from the previous year. So it's getting popular. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. And I don't want to attach every single publishing outcome to the pandemic, but I do think that these hard times we've been living through is at least somewhat driving this trend because people are looking for something light and easy and romantic and sexy to get lost in. And I have noticed more and more romance submissions coming through She Writes Press, and we get a lot of submissions. So even though it's just a small sampling, I do feel like I get a sense of what's trending by seeing what's coming from authors and agents. Agents, you know, in addition to what's selling well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also read that Gen Z is a huge reason for the spike in romance reading, which is interesting to me. Uh, a decade ago, the main demographic for romance was women ages 35 to 54. But in the past several years, that has widened to include women 18 to 54. And that's according to Colleen Hoover's publicist, Ariel Fredman. And she made a similar point saying that it's, it's kind of a way that this generation is coping, given that they're dealing with so much global and social upset. So I think your anecdotal evidence is aligning with what other people in the industry are thinking. Well, there you have it. Good to know. Affirmed. Yeah. Uh, it is on the rise. You know, it's a huge segment of our industry. And for listeners who are interested in getting into this a bit more, please go back and listen to our episode with Angelina Lopez about romance. We talked about a lot of this stuff, you know, like romance getting a lot of flack, yet clearly it's being gobbled up. And now I think the difference that I'm seeing is like salespeople are taking notice. And instead of discouraging us from categorizing books in romance, they're saying, do it more. So if you're a romance writer, I think that's a positive trend that you can use to your advantage and ride the wave. Yeah, it's definitely a wave. And I think a lot of it's uh, happening on uh, TikTok as well. I think that's uh, fueled a huge percentage of the the Gen Z uh, generation's interest in it. So with that, listeners, 
we want to continue our romance with you. We hope you will continue your romance with us and that it is a romance. So we will be back uh, next week with another right-minded writerly topic. Thank you so much for listening and dancing with us. Thank you.